We are in Matthew chapter 4 today. You could turn there with me if you'd like. As we prepare to come around the Lord's table together, we did not do that last Sunday morning. We do it this morning, uh, but we'll look at Matthew chapter 4 first. Uh, first, though, just so you know, because if you're at least in the first half of the sanctuary here, you can see this cut on my head. Uh, I'm doing my Mikhail Gorbachev impression. <laughs> you who don't know who that is, just Google him a picture and you will see. Uh, no, I was, I was working in my yard on Friday and between probably being a little dehydrated and getting stung uh, by Yellow Jacket, I trying to get in the house, passed out on the porch and fell and hit my head. So that's why the, where is it? Right there. The cut is there. Anyway, so just so you know, I don't want it to be any more of a distraction than that. Okay. My, uh, my preaching professor, Don Demeray, encouraged all of his students to keep close track of the number of times that we would speak on different biblical books and texts uh, and to refer to that list regularly as we would plan messages. The reason is, uh, you know, just like everybody else, preachers are prone to return too often and too easily to pet passages and themes and topics. And, And doing that does not deliver to the church the whole counsel of God, as we are called to do. So, so keeping track of what, what you preach on makes you aware of and, and can help the preacher avoid the ruts that certain books and verses and topics can become if, if we're not careful. And, of course, that's not just true for preachers. You know, that's, that's true in all of our devotional lives, too. We are, we're all liable to, to go back to those passages and topics that interest us. And so it's healthy, and it's broadening to push, push out, push ourselves beyond those books and passages and themes and topics. Uh, personally, I think that's really good advice, but I'm not following it today. <laughs> um, in fact, I'm speaking for three Sundays in a row from the book that I've preached out of more than any other book, and I'm using the exact same text for all three of the next Sundays. And it's not because I hit my head on Friday and I'm whacked out. Um, It's because understanding this text, I believe, is, is critically important to any person's ability to live a victorious life following Jesus and overcoming temptation. Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness was his attempt to knock Jesus out of the fight in the first round, you might say. We may think it's strange that it was the spirit that led Jesus into that situation, according to verse 1 there. But, but here's the reality. Jesus came to earth to do just this, to battle the one John calls the prince of this world. And he came to do that For the sake of the soul of God's creation. So the Bible makes it crystal clear. Okay. We do have an enemy. Just as Jesus did. The very same one that Jesus had. 
There is an evil power at work in the world who is out to destroy you, who is out to destroy me. To separate us and all of humanity from God for eternity. That is his purpose. And if we deny that an enemy exists, if we poo-poo that, we have already lost the battle. Okay? We've already lost the battle. Imagine what would happen if President Zelensky over there simply chose to not believe that the Russian army exists. Ukraine would be overtaken in moments. That's what happens to people who deny Satan's reality. Most of them think themselves quite sophisticated. But in reality, they're the walking dead. They're the walking dead. They're done before they know it. Jesus understood that. And he embraced Satan's reality. So to follow Jesus means to do the same. And to fight against him, to resist him, just like Jesus did with all the spiritual tools of God that are available to us. That is part of our mission. There in the wilderness, Satan hit Jesus with three temptations, all of which Jesus successfully overcame. So this, just by the way, reminds us too, that to be tempted is not to sin. Okay? To be tempted is not to sin. To give in to temptation and to do evil is to sin. But to experience temptation is not to sin. We need to keep that straight. Because the church has often been guilty of assigning sin to those who are merely being tempted. That's important. Some Guilt-obsessed believers put that burden and that accusation even on themselves. And many more find it easy to put that on others. But neither is right. Temptation is not sin. (laughs) Jesus experienced temptation, but he did not sin. Thinkers through the ages have presented these verses here in Matthew 4 in so many good ways, I think it would be presumptuous of me to imagine that I could actually add to them. Um, But the comments on this passage from Henry Nouwen, Dutch Catholic priest, who died, I think, a few years ago, 20 years ago maybe, um, his comments on this passage were years ago inspirational to me. And so they do form the basis, at least, for what I want to share and what I hope is hopeful to all of us today. Um, It's been my observation that through the years, (laughs) there have been catchwords that some in the church grab hold of and, and frankly, quickly overuse. Okay? Uh, It's it's not that the words and the concepts are necessarily bad or or wrong. Sometimes they are, but, but not usually. Um, usually it's just that their overuse makes them appear faddish and then they get frankly annoying and then people intentionally just want to forget about them, which is often unfortunate because, because they all have some bit of value to them, or at least most of them do a few examples of what I'm talking about from just the past 25 years. Okay. It would be WWJD. What would Jesus do? Purpose driven. Prayer of Jabez, emergent church. You remember hearing these? 
You remember them going away? You know, you remember wishing you'd never had to hear that again? Yeah. Words like authentic, missional, apostolic, seeker sensitive. Uh, Expressions like lean into or press into, doing life together, love on him or her or whatever, stuff like that. It's not that, that, that those are insignificant concepts. They're, they're not, most of them anyway. But when people wrap their whole lives around one of those things and, and they just come up again and again and again and again, they just become part of the wallpaper of the church. You know, and frankly, most of them only, uh, they don't communicate to non-Christians at all. (laughs) And not only that, non-Christians think they're bizarre when they hear Christians talking about them. Christian jargon. That's what they become. There's a recent blog post about this. Pastor Nadia Weber, she writes this tongue in cheek. She says, after a recent quiet time where I was bathing in prayer, those close to me, God laid it on my heart to lean into being a transformational leader by loving on my blog readers and offering them some anointed ideas from my missional imagination. <laughs> Listen, if you don't find that funny, bordering on ridiculous, you're not engaged enough with people outside the church. Okay? But the point for today about this is that Satan's first temptation of Jesus was all about one of those sorts of trendy, jargony concepts. And that is to be relevant. Relevant. That was a popular Christian jargon word a decade ago or so. There was even a church plant in in the Carolinas back then, Free Methodist Church plant, that was called Relevant Point. Relevant point, with an E, P-O-I-N-T-E, relevant point. I mean, oh, brother. No wonder it failed, you know? Uh, We see here in Matthew, though, that one of the temptations of relevance, relevance, that's existed for way longer than just a decade. The temptation to relevance, the idea that God has to work to be relevant, that his relevance to our culture is tied to what his people can do, even good things. And for others, that's the temptation. That's the temptation to turn those useless stones that were all around Jesus there in the wilderness to be able to turn them into bread, which is something useful and helpful, not only to him, but to others, even to the animals that were out there with him in the barren, dusty wilderness where he was. To do that, you see, that would have made Jesus relevant to those around him. Do something actually useful. Do something helpful. That will make people see value in him, in us, and so in God. Right? Is that so bad? To be relevant like that? Many of us have been 
to places both nearby and far away where we've seen hunger, and we wish we could offer the hungry more than just our prayers or maybe some of our money. We wish maybe that we could turn those stones into bread. Walking through city slums or poor country villages where children die of malnutrition and contaminated water, who of us could have withstood the temptation to be able to do what Satan tempted Jesus to do here? I mean, really, isn't part of our call in following Jesus to do just this? To feed the hungry? To heal the broken? Are we supposed to be people who make a real practical difference in the lives of other people? That was the temptation that Satan laid before Jesus. To use his power as the son of God to prove himself relevant to his world. Satan said, give people what they want and they'll vote for you. Oh, no, wait, that's the political application. (laughs) Satan said to Jesus, give people what they want and they will listen to you. They will listen to your message. They will believe you. That's the spiritual application. But Jesus didn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He would not fall into that trap. Now, he did feed and he did heal from time to time. But all the while, he held to his primary mission to proclaim the word of God. To proclaim that the kingdom of God is coming and here and here in him. He did not make that secondary to any worldly demand for relevance. Jesus answered, Satan, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, God's word is all the relevance that's needed. That was Jesus' answer. Our uh, increasingly secular world announces more and more loudly, (laughs) we can take care of ourselves, we do not need God. We can take care of ourselves. We do not need what you have to offer. And in response to that, many Christ followers have given themselves to becoming in some way relevant to our society. In in sincere hope that the lost might see Jesus in their relevance and in their power. With truly sincere desires to improve our world, more and more Christ followers, it seems, are aspiring to competence to personal power, means of influence, instead of aspiring to faith. Uh, But here's the thing that Jesus knew and that we, anybody who follows Jesus, has to learn, okay? Beneath all of both the great needs and accomplishments of our world, there runs a current of deep, deep despair. We aspire to efficiency and control. But see, things like that, they will never soothe a society that is filled with loneliness and isolation and emptiness and depression. We may well feed a world bread, which is a good and fine thing to do. But all the bread in the world will never satisfy the hungry soul. The bread cannot become the main thing. It cannot become the main thing. Jesus understood that. 
Jesus knew it. In his 1985 novel, Less Than Zero, Brent Ellis describes the moral and spiritual poverty of the children of the super-rich. They had the world at their feet. They had everything they could ever ask for or want or think of. But still, they were a mess because they longed for purpose and love that they could not find. You see, Jesus knew that bread in any of its forms does not meet the most important needs of the world. He understood that. Jesus knew that his mission was to be more than just relevant, as the world defines it. So he actually chose to be, from the world's perspective, completely irrelevant, which allowed him to enter into the deeper places of persons and offer them the bread that really lasts. And Jesus calls his followers to do the same. To reject the temptation to use our power to be seen as relevant to our world. In his commissioning of Peter on the shore of of Galilee after, um, after he'd returned, Jesus did not ask Peter, So, how many people take you seriously these days, Peter? Jesus did not ask him, What are your goals? For this next week or this next five years of ministry. How much have you accomplished since I saw you last? Print out your stats. I want to see your results. Jesus did not ask Peter for any of that. Jesus asked Peter simply three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That's the question Jesus always asks. Do you love me? And if so, then will you simply do as I ask you to do? Because you see, in the end, any good that we do in this world will come not from our own personal power and our presumed relevance. Any good that we do in this world will come from our knowing and loving Jesus enough to do as he tells us. To keep in step with him, no matter what the world does, and no matter what the world thinks. And in order to do that, we have to leave our pursuit of relevance. We have to leave our pursuit of relevance and the ways and the praise of this world that comes from being relevant to our culture. We have to leave all that behind. We've got to leave it behind. In 1985, after teaching for over 20 years at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard, Henry Nouwen took the role of pastor of a place called Daybreak. It was a large community. It was a home of men with developmental and intellectual disabilities. What he quickly realized there was that none of his new parishioners either knew or cared about his credentials, his degrees, his books, his lectures, his travel, his accomplishments. They didn't know about it. They didn't care about it. All they cared about when they looked at their pastor was, would he love them and would he be there for them? 
losing all that had been so identifying to him was a painful process. But now one admits that really it was there at daybreak that he found the heart of following Jesus. That's why Jesus' rejection of the temptation to be relevant was so important. You see, to feed people is fine. It's good. But in the end, the good cannot be allowed to take the place of the great. And the greatest thing any Christ follower can do for someone else is to love them unconditionally as Jesus loves. That's what feeds people at their very deepest level. That's the bread for which every soul searches. And that's what leads hungry people to God the Father. And that is the great thing. That is the great thing. And we dare not give up the great for the good. Jesus did not do that. And in following him, we cannot do that either. We all face the temptation. Day to day, just as Jesus did, to be relevant. And, and, and in our relevance, to be celebrated by our world. But it is to the irrelevance of love that Jesus' followers are called. Today's church, this church, is full of people who've done good things for Christ. uh, Pursued good ideas, written good books, lived good lives, accomplished good things. But here is the question that we all have to wrestle with. Have we done the good things at the expense of doing the great thing? The great thing, to love God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength and, as Jesus said, to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the question we all have to answer. Will we reject the temptation of relevance for the sake of love? God will help us do it. We don't have to do it in our own power or in our own strength. God will help us do it by the power of his spirit. He'll not only help us overcome the temptation to relevance, he will also fill us with love, with his love, for Jesus and for others. He will love through us. He offers to do that. But the choice to let him do that, that's ours to make. Will we reject the temptation to relevance? Instead of the world's applause, will we pursue, as Max Lucado calls it, the applause of heaven? In order to follow him, I think that's what Jesus wants to know from us today, even today. Jesus, you know how we are tempted. You know how we are tempted to leverage our power in order to get things done, even good things done for you. You know how we're tempted to be seen as effective and efficient and helpful and respectable in the eyes of our world. It's a great temptation, especially as as faith falls out of favor in our high-tech, scientifically-minded culture. It's a tremendous temptation. But that is not who you call us to be. Holy Spirit, would you show us, even here and now, any place in us where we've given into the temptation to be relevant to our culture, to seek its glory, to seek its praise. And then would you turn us back to what you would have us to be? Would you help us to choose love over relevance so that we might do the great thing 
of feeding a hungry world what it is truly hungry for, the love of God and the reality and purpose that he brings to life. Lord, we pray for these things because of Jesus. In our effort to follow him, help us to follow him in this. In his name, amen.